0: Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Last weekend, 13 hours, two mass shootings. In El Paso, 22 were killed in what federal authorities are considering a domestic terrorist attack. And in Dayton, nine people were killed when a gunman opened fire in the city's Oregon district. As always, after horrific events like these ones, the question comes will this time be different? Will lawmakers take action, or will things descend, as they always seem to, into a partisan morass? There's been some small movement in the wake of the Parkland and Las Vegas mass shootings. President Trump issued a new rule banning bump stocks, and in February, with a fresh majority in the House, Democrats passed a universal background check bill. That background check vote was nearly a party-line split with eight Republicans voting in favor and two Democrats opposed. In the Republican-controlled Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has, so far, refused to bring the bill up. Though on Thursday, McConnell struck a somewhat different tone, speaking to the local Kentucky Terry Miners radio show on WHAS.
1: There's also been some discussion about background checks. That's an issue that's been around for a while. 90% of Americans believe in, according to the most recent, I saw it in Politico, uh, morning consult poll. ninety percent uh, There's say, a lot of, lot of support for that, that for sure will be uh, front and center.
0: This all got me thinking about the last time major gun control legislation was signed into law. The Brady Bill, which was signed in 1993, but didn't go into effect until February '94, followed by the assault weapons ban later that year.
2: This afternoon, the House of Representatives rose to the occasion and stood up for the national interest. They stood up against the madness that we have come to see when criminals and terrorists have legal access to assault weapons and then find themselves better armed than police, putting more and more people in increasing danger of their lives. So
0: I started digging through the votes on both bills and not surprisingly found that members who represented urban suburban areas voted for the legislation, while those from more rural areas voted against it. But see, at that time, there were Republicans who represented suburban and urban districts and Democrats who represented small town and rural America. Ultimately, 38 House Republicans voted for the bill, while 77 Democrats voted against it. Today, of course, that regional difference has all but disappeared. You don't find any Democrats in rural America or Republicans in urban or suburban areas. So in its place has come deep polarization and partisanship. You vote with your party. That makes real legislating very hard, unless your party has an overwhelming majority in both bodies of Congress. This week, I talked to a Democrat and Republican who were in office at the time. Neither voted with the majority of their party on the assault weapons ban. First up, former Senator Hank Brown, a Republican from Colorado.
1: You know, I uh, have always been a strong advocate of the Second Amendment, but I I had real difficulty in being able to uh, articulate why they needed assault weapons. Uh, assault weapons are not uh, useful for hunting. They're not useful for protecting yourself. They're more of an uh, attack weapon, uh, a weapon of war. And uh, ultimately, I, I decided, even though I didn't like the Feinstein Amendment, which banned uh, assault rifles, uh, ultimately, I decided that I couldn't couldn't articulate why it was good for people to have them.
0: Now, looking at where we are, you as, as you pointed out, back in 1994, you had a hard time justifying why you needed those on the... On the streets or why a hunter would need an assault rifle. Now, again, here we are 25 years later, these weapons are still being used in mass shootings. Do you now think that something else could have been done, should have been done back in the 90s? Well,
1: what the legislation did was uh, ban them, but it didn't implement steps to take them out of circulation, uh, or at least they weren't taken out of circulation. And the reality is uh, no one should think that if you have a a measure to reinstitute the ban on assault weapons, that they're all going to disappear. If if you're going to control the assault weapons, you have to have a program to take them out of circulation. And I'm not sure people have uh, really thought that part through.
0: Well, that's a really good question. There are a lot of Democrats actually who are talking about potential of buyback programs.
1: A buyback program – might be of some value. But uh, the fact is, a lot of people who have uh, weapons like that are probably not going to sell them, unfortunately.
0: What kind of pressure were you getting from Republican leaders in your state and also in the Senate to support or or to not support this crime bill?
1: Uh, Interestingly enough, at the time, none. I have... uh, I've been a strong supporter of uh, the Second Amendment, and I don't think uh, anybody thought I'd vote for the Feinstein Amendment. And uh, I didn't do it because I liked it. I did it because I just simply couldn't uh, figure out how to defend voting against it.
0: So you surprised everybody. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I think a lot of people, yes.
0: And how was what was the reaction like back at home when you went back to Colorado?
1: Some of the gun owner organizations in Colorado were very disappointed uh, and very vociferous. But other than that, I think people uh, accepted it. What I found is when you serve in public office, people are very generous to you. If you've got some reasonable explanation for how you voted, uh, they give you the benefit of the doubt. What is a killer is if you cast a vote that you simply can't defend with a straight face. That ends up being a killer because people can spot when you don't believe what you're saying.
0: Do you, do you think that in this era that we're in right now, that something like what passed in 1994 could happen again? Or was that just a rare moment and the idea that you could get a bipartisan bill, that you could get a Republican supporting legislation with a Democrat in the White House? Could that happen now?
1: We have some challenges now we never had before and some disconnects from the community that are deeper problems that I think are very difficult to solve. But for what Congress can do, I think you're going to see some some innovative solutions come out of this that will be very helpful, particularly getting help for people who have mental problems as clearly the ones who committed these mass murders were.
0: It seems that every time we have some horrific mass shooting, there is a call for something to happen, legislation gets discussed, maybe even promoted but it really doesn't go anywhere. But you see that this might be different.
1: I think you're going to see some legislation come out of this. And I think you'll see some positive legislation. You know, what you hear are the the loud voices of demagogues at times like these. But you also uh, have a lot of very thoughtful people in Congress in both parties that I know are trying to think through what would be helpful here.
0: Senator Brown, this has been really um, wonderful. Thank you so much for for taking this time to talk with me.
1: Amy, I love it that somebody's doing a dispassionate, thoughtful piece on issues. We just need more of it. I also talked to... Glenn Browder. I am a former Alabama
2: congressman. I served in Congress from 1989 to 1997.
0: I asked him to describe his district to me.
2: Alabama's third congressional district is a, a, a rural, small-town, conservative District.
0: Is this true? You were the last Democrat to represent that district.
2: Yes, I was. Uh, as the district stands now, it'll be uh, very hard for a Democrat to win this district in the future.
0: So here we are. It's 1992. President Bill Clinton is elected. He comes into office and two big issues around guns, the Brady Bill, which had waiting periods, and then the 1994 Crime Bill, which included a ban on assault weapons. Do you remember as those bills were being debated what you were thinking about and and what people in your district were thinking uh, about and you here you were a democrat in a uh, as you said a very rural district but it's a democrat in the white house for the first time in a long time.
2: Well, uh, yes, I remember especially I remember the uh, crime bill with the uh, assault weapons ban included in it. I remember that in, in particular. My district was very adamantly opposed to the uh, the gun bill, gun control, but uh, supportive of the, the crime bill. And I, I think what distinguished that time from this time was you know, a, a couple of things. One, Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate, but, uh, but Bill Clinton. Uh, President Bill Clinton was a masterful politician, and I think he, he understood how to get things passed, and he also... He understood uh, Southern Democrats and Southern Republicans also because he was a Southerner himself. The crime bill had the assault weapons ban in it, and there were, there were two, two votes. The vote on the assault weapons ban, and then there was the vote the next day on the overall crime bill. I made the uh, leadership aware that I was going to vote against the assault weapons ban, but that I was going to vote for the crime bill. Whether the assault weapons ban passed or not, I was going to vote for the crime bill. So I ended up the first day voting uh, to uh, remove the assault weapons language, and and that vote failed. The next day, I voted for the crime bill.
0: Did you feel pressure from the Democratic caucus, the leadership in Washington, to support the president on this? Or did they say, we get your district, we understand this is going to be a tough vote for you, it's okay.
2: Well, there was always pressure from the Democratic caucus because the average Democrat in Congress did not understand the the strange position that Southern Democrats were in back then. One of the things that the uh, leadership in the House uh, made clear to us was that our responsibility to the Democratic Party was fulfilled on day one When the entire leadership of the House was selected and the entire leadership of every committee and the staffing of every committee was determined by whether or not the Democrats could rally 218 votes. Frankly, uh, behind closed doors and in private conversations, it was communicated to me that to do whatever I needed to do to keep the Democrats in control uh, of Alabama's third congressional
0: district. So then the 1994 election happens— Democrats, of course, lose the House. Do you think that those bills, the gun control bills, were part of the reason for that?
2: Uh, absolutely. i looked at it, and I estimated that about a third of the people that we lost in the 1994 election, about a third of them, their elections were probably turned on uh, that issue, gun control.
0: Given how many more mass shootings there have been since then, do you wish that more would have been done on this issue? Do you look back now and think maybe we could have – I could have supported something?
2: Uh, yes, I do. Uh, you know, anything that we could have done to, uh, to prevent this from happening uh, would have been advisable. However, I think uh, a problem that we have in this country – is that there is the possibility or there is effective legislation out there for dealing with a lot of issues, whether you're talking about gun control, uh, abortion, immigration, uh, climate change. Uh, I think there are effective things that can be done. But politics in Washington or the environment in Washington is controlled more often by politics than, or political power than trying to uh, come up with good policy. Political control, you you achieve and and keep it by driving your bases. And I think that one of the problems we've had over the years, it's been a lot more interest in maintaining political control or achieving political control than passing good legislation.
0: Congressman Browder, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Amy. So in recent days, there's been talk that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and President Trump may be open to some sort of compromise legislation with Democrats on issues related to gun violence. We've heard things like red flag laws or expanded background checks being discussed, but some argue that these laws don't go far enough and that Democrats should be offering much bolder solutions and policies. Herman Lopez is a senior correspondent at Vox, and he joins me now. Herman, thanks for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you wrote a piece recently. The title was, Democrats have been discussing the same ideas on guns for 25 years. It's time to change that. So tell us what you meant by that, what that would look like.
3: Sure. So if you look at the history here in 1993 and 1994, Democrats and some Republicans passed essentially background checks and an assault weapons ban. And in the 25 years since, that's pretty much the, what the conversation has stuck to this entire time. It's now universal background checks and an assault weapons ban. And that's to me, just signifies that there hasn't been much progress on this issue. When you compare it to like, what Democrats have done on single pair or the Green New Deal or taxes on the wealthy and so on and so forth, these are places where they've noticeably shifted. But on guns, it's pretty much been the same thing, just background checks and an assault weapons ban for the last 25 years.
0: And why do you think that is?
3: I think the, the biggest thing is just it, it was seen as like politically difficult. There was a huge political backlash back in 94 when when they did pass the, the assault weapons ban in particular. And Democrats since then, even as I think there's been noticeable shifts on this issue publicly and politically, they, they've they just been scared of that kind of political backlash happening again, particularly in like some of the, the swing states and rural places.
0: Now, though, you do have a number of Democratic candidates who are taking positions that go much farther than just background checks. There's been talk about issues like gun licensing, for example. So can you walk us through the 2020 candidates who's who's proposing sort of the 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 most progressive to folks who are are not?
3: Right. So I think there's there's essentially two different sides here. One is the the more moderate side which is still focused on assault weapons bans and background checks and that includes uh, Joe Biden, Michael Bennett, those are the 2020 candidates generally on that side. And then the other side is mostly this licensing side. So these are people who believe that they, they usually use the comparison of like a driver's license, just as you need a driver's license to drive a car, you should have a license to buy and own a gun. And this has really been led forward by Cory Booker, he, he made probably the most ambitious proposal along these lines. But other, there have been other, a few other Democrats that have come on board, such as Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Andrew Yang as well. So there's been some movement in that area, and it, it is a significant place where, if you look at the research, licensing is actually more effective than just background checks or assault weapons bans. So that is not only a, a place where the politics have shifted, but where it could help people.
0: Though there will be plenty of folks who say to Democrats, even people who are Democrats, Democratic strategists, who will say the term gun licensing in a place like Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, states that Democrats need to win in 2020, will be politically damaging, that voters in those states hear gun licensing and they they hear the term gun licensing and they think of confiscation or they're going to come in. You know, take our guns uh, away from us. How can Democrats propose something sweeping like that while also being able to hold those important swing states?
3: Yeah, I think he, this is like what's known as the quote unquote intensity gap. Essentially, the idea is like if you think of the NRA member, he is much more likely to vote on just this issue of guns than a Democrat who propo- might support stronger gun control, might support licensing. Um, But in the end, that same Democrat will probably also have, like, climate change in mind, the economy in mind, whereas that NRA member, guns are the issue that they will vote on. So what Democrats have to do, and there's been some movement, I think, in this direction with the Parkland movement, with all these mass shootings, they just have to start caring about guns more and being more willing, essentially, to say, hey, this is an issue we're prioritizing. We will be the counterweight to the NRA on this issue if necessary. Um, and we've seen some movement in that direction. We have the In the debates, the first debates, when Democrats were polled about this, gun violence was one of the top two issues for them.
0: Do you think you had also written and talked about Democrats really being more forceful on the issue of the Second Amendment itself. What would that look like?
3: There was a long campaign by the NRA for the past few decades to really get us to see the Second Amendment as an individual right, protecting an individual right. I think it's been pretty successful. Most Americans agree that the that, that Second Amendment does protect an individual right. But There could be a a movement in the other direction suggesting that, no, this is actually a collective right that it says well-regulated in the Second Amendment. That does mean regulations. It might mean that, like, if outside of the context of a militia, which is how the Second Amendment was written, then maybe there isn't an individual right to own a gun. This is, like, a pretty radical proposal. Most Democrats are not on board with with it, but – if the NRA was successful in changing people's minds about how to view the Second Amendment and people want something really big done on guns, then it makes sense that they would try to do a campaign essentially in the reverse, to change people's minds about what the Second Amendment means.
0: Legislatively though, the polling doesn't seem to be able to match up with the reality, right? That you have an overwhelming majority of people say, even just basics like background checks they support, it can't get through Congress. What do you say to folks who think, well, maybe we should just first try to get these small things through Congress before we push for something bolder? Or do you think if you don't go bold, you're never going to get anything?
3: I think that's a big concern, just as with like health care and the Green New Deal and whatnot. These incremental proposals would help. But at some point, the Democratic Party has to have a bigger vision on where it wants to go on guns.
0: And do you see that happening in 2020 or do you think it's going to happen post this election?
3: I think it could start in 2020. I mean, in 2016 is when we started really talking about like single payer health care in the US thanks to Bernie Sanders campaign, we could start moving in that direction in 2020.
0: By, by the end of this uh, 2020 cycle, we'll have more options, potentially.
3: Yeah, if Democrats take Congress, and if they take the White House and make progress on this issue, they, they could have some ways to go.
0: Herman, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks all for having me.
0: Herman Lopez is a senior correspondent at Vox. All right, folks, where some see voter fraud, others see voter suppression. For the rest of this hour, we tackle the complex world of absentee ballots. Remember, your opinion is part of this as well. Tweet me at Amy E. Walter or at The Takeaway to let us know what you're thinking about. Be right back on Politics with Amy Walter. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Thanks for being with us. Last week, a new round of charges were filed against a political operative in North Carolina. He's being investigated for alleged voter fraud in the 2016 and 28 elections related to his handling of absentee ballots. So with this news, I decided to explore the topic of absentee ballots. And let me tell you, it opened a whole can of worms.
4: Well, the definition of an absentee ballot varies a lot from one state to another. Absentee ballots are really set up for controversy.
0: That's Barry Burden, a professor of political science and director of the Elections Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We reached out to him to get the basics of absentee ballots and to help us set a foundation for what they look like nationwide.
4: We generally mean a ballot that is distributed to a voter by mail and then often returned by mail. Though, again, there are a lot of variations. In some states, it's possible to receive an absentee ballot in person and to cast or at least leave it with an election worker in person.
0: According to Burden, the people who are allowed to vote with absentee ballots also depends on the individual state. Most states will allow any resident who's registered to vote by absentee if they request the ballot on time. Other states don't allow people to use an absentee ballot unless they have a valid excuse. All states approach this question in a different way.
4: Well, on the one end of the scale, we have a few states, predominantly in the West, places like Washington, Oregon, Colorado, That are distributing all of their ballots by mail automatically. Voters don't request them. If they're they're registered, they will receive a ballot by mail, and then they have the opportunity to return it in a whole variety of ways, from mailing it back to leaving it in a drop box to delivering it to an election official on election day. On the other end are some states who actually are on the other end of the country, mostly in New England and East Coast states, a couple in the South, that really uh, squelch the use of absentee ballots. They have very little use of them because they require an excuse and some administrative steps for a voter to go through in order to get the absentee ballot. And most voters would not qualify. Then there's this broad swath in the middle. I would say most states are really quite accommodating of absentee ballots. They permit voters to get them uh, with no excuse. They can return them in a variety of ways, uh, though most are done by mail. Uh, and so in these states, you see anywhere from 10 or 15 percent of voters voting absentee to sometimes 60 or 70 percent of voters voting absentee.
0: So once you actually get your ballot in the mail, the act of submitting the ballot is also pretty complicated.
4: In many states, a voter can have a family member or a, a trusted person who they grant authority to return the ballot for them. And in, in some other states, the voter may not have anyone else deliver the ballot for them. And in some states, the law really says nothing about this. And I think we're, we're beginning to see the edges of that being probed in the scandal that happened in North Carolina and elsewhere, where ballots have been harvested or collected in a way that's malicious with an intent of really trying to change the election.
0: And that's where the controversy lies, especially for states that have high rates of absentee ballots. Political organizations, large and small, have also gotten into the business of promoting absentee ballots smart politics. They want to increase participation from voters they know share their political viewpoints. So they encourage them to vote by absentee ballot. That way, they know they have a vote in the bank even before Election Day. Last week in Michigan, for example, we walked through a neighborhood with local Democratic organizers who were encouraging their targeted voters to sign up to get an absentee ballot. But when does encouraging someone to vote absentee cross the line into fraud? The key point is what happens during the period between sending out the ballots and returning them.
4: It's essentially paper that's been distributed into the community by election officials. We don't know what happens with that paper until it arrives back in the election official's office. And so there's just more opportunities for things either malicious or unexpected or accidental to happen along the way. And that really sets up people to be suspicious, I think.
0: But who determines that a ballot is fraudulent? If a ballot has been challenged or is suspected of being fraudulent, who investigates? And how can we know that the investigation is fair? So
4: who determines whether a ballot is fraudulent also varies a lot from state to state. The typical setup would be a canvassing board or a, a board established on a county basis, so county by county, that would review the ballots uh, after election night, uh, particularly ballots that are challenged or the review of provisional ballots and determine which of those should be counted, which should not. Uh, It usually happens very quickly. It depends, again, on the state, but it may be anywhere from just a few days after the election to several weeks after the election until the votes are finally certified.
0: So there's a lot of room for mistakes. And with the complicated and different laws throughout the country, people may be confused with submitting absentee ballots. That coupled with states' discretion in investigating these cases is what has led to allegations of voter fraud. Some allegations that may be legitimate some that may not be. So we're exploring two separate cases today of problems with absentee ballots, one that's still underway and another one that was proven to be false. Now we go to North Carolina, where last week more indictments were brought against Leslie McRae Dowless. For those who may not remember, Dallas was a political operative who has been at the center of a voter fraud scandal. He's alleged to have tampered with absentee ballots during both the 2016 and 2018 elections to help his candidates win. I spoke with Steve Harrison, the political reporter for public radio station WFAE in Charlotte, North Carolina. He helped us to break down this case and explain to us what may happen next.
5: Dowlis had uh, previously been charged with mail ballot fraud relating to the 2016 general election in the 2018 primary. And so these charges We're on going back to the November 2018 election, the one that was in the news and the one that we're having to redo in September. So many of the charges are very similar. Um, It's just, you know, it was just a different election. In addition to McRae Dallas being charged, six of his associates were also charged. The the main charge was. uh, illegally possessing an absentee ballot, but he was also charged with uh, obstruction of justice and, um, and trying to get his associates to perjure themselves on his behalf. So so here's what we know, and, and there's still a lot of unknowns in this case because there were so many absentee mail ballots in this election. What the testimony showed at the Board of Elections investigation in February was that his associates picked up the ballots for him. There was testimony that when they had an incomplete ballot either a blank ballot or one where the voter had just filled in some of the races that they filled in they you know finished circling in the bubbles on on other races
0: well let's maybe even take a step back it's the congressional race in 2018 in the 9th district so if you could sort of walk us through okay it's election sure. night it's really close And out comes this, hmm, we see some irregularities.
5: That's right. So the the ninth Congressional District starts uh, in Charlotte, and it moves to the eastern part of the state through a lot of rural counties. Um, It is a – the Republican state legislature drew it as a safe Republican seat. It voted for President Trump, I think, by about 11 percentage points in 2016. But, of course, last year there was a big blue wave election. A lot of Democrats were motivated. So this race was really close um, at the end of election night, the Republican Mark Harris was ahead of the Democrat Dan McCready by 905 votes. But everyone kind of assumed this was over. But about three weeks later, the elections board said, we are not going to certify this right now. We are going to investigate. And what happened in Bladen County, which is at the far eastern part of the district, a very rural, very poor county, there has been kind of a long tradition of people voting absentee by mail, which is legal. but. A tradition of, of kind of op- political operatives on both sides really working to get people to vote by mail, signing them up early. Because it's such a small county, if you can really hustle and get 100 people, 200 people to vote by mail, you could make a big difference in local races. And so that had been going on for years, and there had, for years there had been complaints, allegations made. Mm-hmm. Um, the Board of Elections wanted the state to investigate. They didn't. They would wanted the feds to investigate they didn't, and so finally, they blew the whistle on it in um, in late November.
0: What about outside groups or third party groups? Are you seeing that they're already starting to get active in the state because you have a Senate race, governor's race, presidential race?
5: So yeah, I think I mean, and it's really starting this holdover election from last November, uh. the one that's the redo between Dan McCready and and Dan Bishop. I think is a a kind of a test case for twenty twenty. Sure. And both sides, especially the Republicans, are kind of using this as um, let's see what works. The Democrat, McCready is McCready, um, he has not held elected office before, but he is a moderate. So I think this is a real um, – everyone's going to kind of watch and see whether, whether the, uh, the movement left of the Democratic Party, how that's going to impact – it's, uh, it's moderate candidates across the country. So I think the Republicans are really going to look at this race and see like, OK, what worked? Were we able to take Dan McCready, right. who is a moderate, and really tie him to the, the leftward push of the party?
0: Steve Harrison, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Now we turn to Georgia. Georgia, of course, has a long history of denying the right to vote for its African-American citizens. And many of you are probably familiar with the controversy surrounding the state's gubernatorial race last year between Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, where there were allegations of voter suppression of African-American voters. But today we're digging into a much smaller case from 2010 that involved alleged electoral fraud that took place in a school board race down in Brooks County. Those implicated were local African-American organizers, many of whom were running for the school board election. They were accused by the state government of illegally handling absentee ballots. The case was open for six years, but ultimately no one was ever sentenced for it. This case highlights the complicated intersection between Georgia's racist past with the new voting laws that allow people to vote outside of a polling place. I spoke with John Ward, a national political correspondent with Yahoo News. He spent five months digging into this case and wrote about it this week.
6: The election of 2010, it was a small school board race in a small town near the Florida-Georgia line in Brooks County in a town called Quitman. And basically you had a group of people in the black community there. One woman in particular became very educated on what the changes to the absentee ballot laws had been just in the previous few years by the Republican legislature. Because at the time, absentee ballots were considered something that Republicans made use of much more than Democrats But this woman, Nancy Dennard, who's now the mayor of Quitman, by the way, she kind of led the charge to organize around absentee ballots. And local officials in the town were alarmed at this for political and cultural and social reasons, but also because they hadn't seen it before. So they alerted the state and Kemp was now secretary of state. His office approved an investigation and they conducted 400 interviews and they ended up bringing 120 felony charges against 12 organizers for voter fraud. The majority of the charges, about two-thirds to three-quarters, were for illegal possession of a ballot, and the other third to a quarter were for interfering with a ballot. But basically, I think my reporting was able to show that Kemp's office was sort of responsible under statute for approving this. He actually also kept the case open for six years before the state elections board, even after there had been two mistrials and a jury acquittal.
0: Yeah. And let's set this setting here of Brooks County, which historically has been really on the front lines in the post-Civil War era, Jim Crow era, incredible violence of the white community against its African-American residents. And the folks who brought the charges were also all white. So this was all black defendants and all white accusers. Is that right?
6: Correct. Uh, it generally broke down along racial lines. And you're correct. The The racial history of Brooks County is, is very, very, very dark. Uh, it had the third highest number of lynchings during the Jim Crow era, according to a report by the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, there were two outbreaks in particular, one in the 1890s and one in 1918. And obviously, some people there don't want this history remembered.
0: What happened then after that? If you can sort of walk us through, how did it start? So this Postmaster says this seems kind of fishy. I'm going to alert the authorities, and then it went where? The
6: July primary happens within
0: about a week.
6: A an investigation is uh, ongoing and sort of launched of that primary, and then over that summer, between the July primary and the November general election, two things happen. There's the interviews going on mostly in the black community. By these uh, investigators who are wearing firearms, which is part of their job, but is also was was reported by people to be part of sort of a, an intimidating presence. And then there's also actually a, a situation where the two white school board members are allowed by a judge to run as write-ins in the fall campaign, despite a sore loser law in the state.
0: So now it's November, and have charges then been filed?
6: No, the election in the fall, the two. Black school board members, Diane Thomas and uh, Linda Troutman, they both win again in the fall. And then four days before Christmas, 10 people are rounded up by uh, police and and jailed that day. And their mugshots are taken in orange jumpsuits. And those mugshots are then sort of plastered all over uh, newspapers. They're shown on Fox News as examples of voter fraud. And then two more people are later arrested uh, in 2011. Charges are actually not formally brought for another year, actually. When I spoke with Larry Cunningham, he was one of the, the local officials who's on the school board now and has been for a while, who first brought some of these concerns to the attention of law enforcement. And and he also said that he felt like the people organizing this were, were trying to stay within the law and did not have ill intent. And that, to me, was actually a hugely significant statement. And I don't really care whether he is sincere Uh, or whether he would have said something different in the past because he's saying it now, which I think indicates very much the reality of what was happening because I think he understands uh, probably more clearly than he did at the time even. Based on all of the discovery that's come out, based based on more information coming out, he understands uh, what these people were up to, which is they were very organized and energized to, to, to get out the vote, to help older people vote, to help people who were intimidated by the ballot Uh, and polling place and electronic machines maybe to vote. And so there was not really a whole lot of evidence showing any kind of cheating or malfeasance.
0: John, when I look at this one small case in this one small town, it makes me think 2020 could be an absolute mess in states that have absentee balloting, um, especially states where it's new for them. What was your feeling as you finished reporting here about what this could look like in 2020,
6: well, there's two elements to it. Um, when we're, if we're just going to talk about absentee ballots, there's states like California that have very liberal laws mm-hmm. about how many ballots you can collect on behalf of voters and turn in. I have talked to a number of people who are concerned about that because it does open the door to sort of organized, you know, on a really large scale, organized potential abuse of that. I don't believe there's evidence of that yet, but it, but some people felt like it opened the door to that. And then the other side of the coin is that there's a, been a clear message received by a number of people, not just in Quitman and in Brooks County, but around the state and even around portions of the South, people of color. Because the message they, they get from this, some of them, is that voting's more trouble than it's worth because even if the equipment 10 plus 2 ended up exonerated and, you know, came out on top in some respects, a lot of people don't want to have to deal with six years of living in legal limbo, potentially facing decades in jail.
0: John Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this.
6: Well, thank you for, for doing it. I appreciate it.
0: we Head into the 2020 election, we know that campaigns and their allies are going to be relying heavily on early voting. And with that comes the possibility of a lot more cases like the ones we saw in Bladen County, North Carolina, or Brooks County, Georgia. How confident can we be that state and local officials are going to be able to balance that push pull between ballot integrity and ballot access? To get some insight on this, I spoke with Andra Gillespie. She's an associate professor of political science at
7: Emory University she's seen firsthand the many challenges for voters attempting to vote via absentee ballot. So in particular, in Georgia, a lot of the issues that came up related to whether or not people's voter registration applications were accepted in the first place, and then whether or not their absentee ballots were accepted. So if we look at voter registration applications, and in particular, the issues related to the exact match system. And so basically what it says is that when a person registers to vote, if they register online and they're typing it onto an online system or they're using a paper form and then that gets transcribed, the voter registration application is then matched with other state records. So it could be driver's license records. It could be um, federal documents like Social Security records, um, immigration and naturalization documents. And if the name isn't spelled exactly on the voter registration document, as it is on the document with which it is being cross-referenced, then it is flagged, and then the voter would have to go through additional hurdles before they would be allowed to vote. So they would, you know, have to produce additional identification so that they could verify the spelling of their name and other types of things. So um, one of my former students, Madeline Brown, who now works at the Urban Institute, uh, did her senior thesis on this, and and, and people of color are more likely. To have their names flagged because of exact match problems, because you could be talking about unusual non-Western spelling of names. Mm-hmm. It could, you know, be a missing dash. Sometimes it could be a transcription error, and then especially if you have an unusual or hard to spell name, um, if somebody, you know, sees. Um, You know, Mary Ann, for instance, and in their head, Mary Ann has no E, but your name has an E and it gets written wrong. Then all of a sudden you, you know, don't know you're not the right person. And so your name gets flagged.
0: So if people are filling out their absentee ballots without receiving much help or doing this by themselves without knowing the rules, what are some of the other logistical problems we can see with the ballots?
7: Part of the issue with absentee ballots was in Gwinnett County in particular, which is the state's largest county. It's uh, just northeast of Atlanta they saw that there was a, a disproportionately high number of of absentee ballots that were rejected because the county um, had made a determination that um, either people had filled out the forms incorrectly, so sometimes when people were asking year, they mistook year of birth for the current year, so they would write in 2018 as opposed to the year that they were born, um, or they were looking at signatures and they said that the signature on the absentee ballot Um, didn't actually match the signature that was included in a person's voter registration application. And so they were getting flagged. And and the other thing that I'll say about uh, absentee ballots is, you know, Georgia up until uh, 2018 was using an electronic voting system one that was put in place in 2002 that doesn't have a type of paper ballot verification, so you don't get a receipt. And so given um, the suspicion that some people had about their votes actually counting, there were some people who preferred to take out absentee ballots because they could uh, make a copy of it, they could take a picture of it so that they could prove that they in fact had voted if there were a problem with uh, their ballot at some point in the future. So can we talk more about how this breaks down along racial lines? Is this Is this
0: just a question of laws that are vague, or are officials explicitly choosing? to go after people of color?
7: You know, even if you didn't consciously intend to, 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 to be racist, you we also have to account for the ways that unconscious bias might actually um, lead people to make subjective decisions about scrutinizing um, certain types of voters more so than other types of voters. And I think getting back to the absentee ballot question, particularly with respect to signatures, that's actually a really important place where people could unintentionally actually introduce biases that we all carry from having lived... Um, In a country with a long sordid history of racial discrimination, the closest analog to it would be to look at um, Stacey Abrams' organization. So in 2014, members of her organization and the groups uh, that her organization hired to do voter registration were investigated um, for voter registration fraud. Um, and so there were allegations there that people were filling out forms incorrectly and doing things. And so, you know, there was this ongoing investigation by the um, secretary of state's office into wrongdoing there. Um, and, you know, again, um I understand why Stacey Abrams' organization actually thought that they were being targeted because of their work trying to increase the number of voters of color in the state of Georgia. Um, so when I when I hear about these stories, I think it is understandable why. Um, Voting rights advocates have the concerns that they have, and I think it makes it hard for elected officials, particularly those who are overseeing elections, to really establish a trust relationship uh, with communities of color. These are the reasons why I think voting rights advocates have a legitimate question um, and have the right to be able to raise questions when people are having A basic fundamental right like voting taken away from them or even questioned because of evidence that might, in fact, be spurious.
0: Okay, so do you expect in 2020 we're going to see a lot of cases like we saw in 2018 in Gwinnett or 2010 in Brooks County, even what we're seeing today in North Carolina?
7: you know, I'm not so sure that the top top of the ticket is actually going to drive a lot of this discussion. I think the places where it could matter um, are in really really competitive states and districts and in races where um, the outcome of the election really could be decided by, you know, a handful of votes, a few dozen, maybe a few hundred votes. Um, You know, this becomes a national proportion if the electoral college count, Um, is so narrow that it comes down to one state. And then you have the Florida problem where it comes down to, you know, 500 some odd votes in in one particular state deciding who can hit the 270 mark. Um, You know, so there could be local races where this certainly causes um, an issue. Um, you know, there could be wider issues of if we, we're starting to see voter registration drives, particularly ones that are seeking to bring out new sets of voters that typically um, don't vote at rates that are commensurate with their population. Um, and seeing also, you know, whether or not there are laws in place that allow individual citizens to challenge the right to vote. So, there, you know, so the the story of voter suppression is likely still going to be a really salient story. In 2020, and I think we just have to remember that these allegations take on various forms. You know, I think the thing that's different for 2020 compared to 2018 is because it is a presidential election. And because um, the, the specter of international tampering is going to be higher, even though it was certainly present in 2018 as well, is whether or not, God forbid, there is a county that is lax in their uh, protection of their voting systems that allows some foreign entity to come in and, you know, hack the system. Um, you know, that's the thing that I, I think should be keeping um, election officials up at night. And so this is the thing that I hope people are vigilant and actually Trying to combat as much as possible. Andra Gillespie, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. Thank you.
0: Every year, the technology campaigns used to find and communicate with voters gets more and more sophisticated. But the ways in which we determine if those votes are cast legally, well, they're woefully inadequate. That means that when voters are concerned about fraud or suppression, the offices accountable for investigating those charges should let the community know what they are doing and why. For institutions to be trusted, they also need to be transparent. That's all for us this week on Takeaways Politics with Amy Walter. The fine folks who produce this podcast, along with me, are the mighty Amber Hall, the incredible Jose Olivares, the amazing Debbie Daughtry is our engineer and board op. Jake Howitt does, I, I don't know something. I'm not exactly sure. Is he direct? Is that? Anyway, meanwhile Meg Dalton has helped us out on digital editing this week. Thanks to all of them and to you for being with us. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter.